This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer, and welcome to Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. Texas, it seems, has found a way to finally dismantle Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 Supreme Court ruling that legalized abortions in the United States. That decision gave women the right to choose whether to have an abortion, and also gave them the right to do so without excessive government interference. What Texas did was ban abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy, even though many women don't yet know they're pregnant. The law also allows private citizens with no connection whatever to the woman involved to sue abortion providers and anyone else who helps a woman obtain an abortion, including cab drivers, Uber drivers, and anyone else who gives a woman a ride to an abortion clinic or who helps her pay for an abortion. There are no exceptions to the law either, including in cases involving rape or incest. The Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to four vote, with Chief Justice John Roberts voting with the Court's three liberal justices, refused to block the law from going into effect before the full case can be heard, which it surely will be, signaling that Roe v. Wade is now hanging by a very precarious thread. The topic for this week, therefore, is an updated version of Episode 18 from July 2020, Abortion and Where Judaism Stands on It. It was only a matter of time before the Supreme Court overcame an obvious reluctance to tackle the abortion issue head-on. Last year, when the earlier version of this podcast was aired, that reluctance was quite evident. Not this time, though. The Court has jumped in with at least ten feet into the issue. How the Court will decide the Texas case, once it's actually put before them, is still open to conjecture. What is clear is that Chief Justice Roberts will continue to oppose overturning Roe v. Wade, not because he approves of abortion, because he does not, but because he stands firmly behind not overturning long-held court decisions. And this one is 47 years old. He made his position on that very clear last year. This is the only bright spot in the current environment because it is possible he can persuade at least one of the five other conservative justices to do the same. The principle known as stare decisis is very important to him. Stare decisis would have justices follow rules or principles laid down in previous judicial decisions unless they contravene the ordinary principles of justice. In other words, the court could order an end to segregated schools, as it did in Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, despite earlier decisions because segregation contravened the ordinary principles of justice. The court now, however, would be at least morally bound not to overturn Brown v. Board of Education because it would contravene the ordinary principles of justice. The same is true here. Whether Roberts can convince one of the other five conservative justices to agree is a nail-biter. Roberts also has a second argument to make, and one that can prove effective. 
Roe v. Wade prevents governments from enforcing anti-abortion laws. The Texas law gets around that. Instead of requiring government to enforce the law, it allows individuals to bring civil lawsuits against abortion providers or anyone else found to aid or abet illegal abortions. There's a very huge issue here that is certain to give the conservative justices pause before approving the Texas law. That same technique of leaving it up to individuals, not government, to bring lawsuits to be applied across the board to any laws involving rights. The High Court may not overturn Brown v. Board of Education, but if the Texas abortion law is allowed to stand, a state could pass a similar law saying that individuals could sue a school principal, say, who allows blacks and whites to sit in the same classroom. Roberts himself previewed this threat in dissenting from the other conservative justices, when he warned about, quote, the consequences of approving the state action, both in this particular case and as a model for action in other areas, unquote. So what does Judaism have to say about whether abortions should be allowed or be banned? The simple answer is that all of Judaism's major religious streams Orthodox, conservative, reform, and reconstructionist have weighed in at one time or another on the side of Roe v. Wade. They don't want government to interfere with a woman's right to have abortion. Let's be clear about this, however. Judaism doesn't encourage abortion. Its opposition, though, is on moral grounds for the most part, not halakhic ones. Although, as you'll hear, this is open to interpretation. It certainly does not support abortion on demand, in the broadest application of that term, but it favors the fewest governmental restrictions on its availability. That's because such restrictions could clash with our religious right to allow an abortion in order to safeguard the health of the mother. Since most halakhic authorities have a more liberal view of what that means than our government ever will have, Many, for example, include a woman's mental health, and some even have a very liberal definition of what that means. Our religious right is impeded by the kinds of legislative initiatives that have been making their way to the Supreme Court. There are midrashic commentaries and rabbinic literature spanning nearly 2,000 years that have painted an idealized picture of the fetus, including having it studying Torah while in the womb. But these are commentaries and individual opinions. They're not law. Normative Jewish law doesn't recognize the fetus as being a nefesh, in this case meaning an actual human life. That status attaches only when the head begins to crown during birth. Till that moment, halakha, Jewish law, doesn't view the fetus as having an identity independent of its mother. As the Talmud puts it, gufahi meaning it's her body up until the birthing begins. For that reason as well, the Talmud denies the father any right to decide the fetus's fate, just as he has no say in whether his wife gets a haircut or needs an appendectomy. Kufahi, it's her body, not his. The sages of blessed memory base their ruling on a verse in Exodus 21 as it relates to another verse, this one in Numbers 35. Here's what the Exodus verse says, quote, When men fight and one of them pushes a pregnant woman and a miscarriage results, but 
no other damage ensues to the mother, the one responsible shall be fined, unquote. Now hear what the Numbers verse says, quote, You shall not take a ransom for a murderer's life, unquote. That verse is crucial. Under no circumstances can money buy a person's way out of a capital crime. So if the Exodus verse says a fine is the punishment for a person who causes a miscarriage, it follows that the unborn fetus is not considered a life. Now, someone could argue that the Exodus verse refers to a fetus that hasn't yet been fully formed, probably only a few weeks old at best. The same piece of Talmud, however, that interpreted the verse to mean a fetus is not a life, also makes clear that it means that it's not a life until the very last moment before the head emerges from the woman's body. Hufahi, it says, it's her body and her body alone, and it's no different from any other part of her body. And it's definitely not a life, as Judaism defines life. The late one-time chief rabbi of the British Commonwealth, Rabbi Lord Emanuel Jacobowitz, a renowned medical ethicist in his day, once wrote that in Jewish law, the right to life of a fetus, quote, before birth, is entirely unrelated to theological considerations. Neither the question of the entry of the soul before birth nor the claim to salvation after death have any practical bearing on the subject, unquote. Although he acknowledged halachic regulations do strenuously try to protect the unborn child whenever possible, for example, one can violate Shabbat in order to save an unborn child, he added that none of those regulations are based on the premise, quote, fetus enjoys human inviolability, unquote. Baron Jakobowitz was orthodox. A conservative authority, the late Rabbi David Feldman, wrote this in his book on the subject, quote, While Christianity's position on abortion has raised the moral level of Western civilization in this regard and has succeeded in sensitizing humanity to a greater reverence for life, it is obviously comprised, at the same time, of theological postulates which the Jewish community cannot share, unquote. That's normative Judaism's position, and it all begins with that verse from Exodus 21. By interpreting the verse the way they did, the sages in another section of the Talmud were able to rule that a woman's life takes precedence over the life of her fetus. When a pregnancy endangers the woman's life, the fetus must be aborted. Sages ruled that way despite one sage's claim elsewhere in the Talmud that a fetus, quote, is fully fashioned on the 41st day of pregnancy, unquote. Maimonides codified the sage's decision in chapter 1 of his The Laws of Murder, and so did the authoritative code of Jewish law, the Shulchan Aruch. Until it begins to be born, the fetus is not a life according to established Jewish law. There's also a principle of Jewish law that states that, quote, one life may not be taken to save another, unquote. In this law, too, then, we see that the unborn fetus is not considered a nephesh because its, quote, life, unquote, can be taken, especially if the mother's health is involved. For those sages and the rabbis who came after them who prefer to accept the claim that a fetus is fully developed by the 41st day, another principle of Jewish law enters the picture in order to protect the mother's life. The fetus is classified as a rodef, a pursuer seeking to cause harm or to kill another. Where Rodef is concerned, we're permitted to take one life to save another. Aside, Torah equates rape with murder and classifies a rapist as a Rodef who may be killed, if that's the only way to stop him from committing the crime. But that's for another discussion. All of what I just said would seem to suggest that Judaism, in fact, supports a woman's right to choose. After all, it's her body. 
and the fetus, regardless of its stage of physical development, is not an independent life. And indeed, the more liberal authorities agree, albeit with reservations on moral grounds. It's one thing to allow, and even encourage, a woman to have an abortion because her health, mental or physical, may be endangered by the fetus. It's quite another to look with dispassion on an abortion performed when no danger exists or worse. It's performed for frivolous reasons. In one respect, though, Judaism does offer a backhanded support for a woman's right to choose if her health is at risk and she refuses to abort. In that case, a bet din, a Jewish religious court, theoretically can order her to have one, although these days it has no practical way of enforcing such an order. It would be more accurate, therefore, to say that Judaism supports a woman's right to have an abortion for reasons it considers valid, while recognizing that the decision on whether the reasons are valid must be the mother's. The effect may be the same, but the position isn't. Some authorities, of course, insist abortion is prohibited by Torah law itself. Their reasoning, however, is convoluted. In context, it states in Genesis chapter 9, quote, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, unquote. However, the Hebrew doesn't quite resemble the translation. The phrase, Shofech dam ha'adam ba'adam, literally means, Whoever sheds man's blood within man. As the sage Rabbi Yishmael put it, quote, What is a man within another man? An embryo in his mother's womb, unquote. However, that verse in Genesis literally can be read as whoever sheds man's blood within man. But on the other hand, it can also be literally translated this way, quote, Whosoever sheds man's blood within man shall his blood be shed, unquote. That changes the Genesis verse from being a biblical command against abortion to becoming a mandate for any method of execution that doesn't require shedding blood. In the Talmud's day, that meant hanging. In modern times past, that meant the electric chair or gas chamber, and today means lethal injection. In any case, what the rabbis who see an abortion ban in Genesis 9 can't answer is why, if abortion is murder, it's nevertheless not classified as a capital crime, either in Exodus 21 or in any other Torah verse, or in the deliberations of the sages, or why, in fact, it carries no punishment as such. Here's the bottom line. Most authorities would permit abortions if the physical health of the mother is in danger. Some are more comfortable allowing it through the first 40 days. Many others will allow abortions all the way up to the moment of birth. Admittedly, defining the health of the mother is subject to varying opinions. Some see it as her life is in actual danger. Others, that there's a potential risk to her life. Still others extend it to a threat to her general physical health and even her mental health. And as I noted earlier, some authorities have a very liberal view of what mental health means in this context. Benzion Meir Chai Uziel, the late Sephardi chief rabbi in pre-statehood Israel, what was then known as Mandatory Palestine, once ruled in favor of an abortion when tests showed that the mother would likely become deaf if she carried to term. If a woman became pregnant after a rape or incest, Many authorities would allow an abortion in those cases. Some would even allow it in cases where the fetus developed out of an adulterous relationship. The adultery issue is informative as well because a rabbi in the Middle Ages ruled that such fetuses may not be aborted. A generation or so later, however, another rabbi ruled that the fetus could be aborted, and it's his reason that's important. 
In ancient times, he said, adulterers were supposed to be executed, assuming, of course, that a case for adultery could actually be made in court, which is highly unlikely. Anyway, the rabbi reasoned that the woman would be executed even though she was pregnant. Executing the woman meant executing the fetus. So what difference is there, this rabbi asked, between executing a fetus and aborting one? Abortions also were seen by many authorities as acceptable if tests show that the unborn fetus would suffer from some horrible disease or physical deformity. Even Orthodox authorities on the right have permitted abortions in cases of Tay-Sachs disease, for example, or even in rubella cases. Clearly, there is no easy answer to where Judaism stands on the broad abortion question, but just as clearly we have a stake in preserving Roe v. Wade, and our voices need to be heard. And clearly, they need to be heard now. For us, tampering with abortion in any substantive way infringes on our First Amendment right to freedom of religion. Just like with freedom of speech or freedom of the press, both of which are under attack by many of the same people who oppose abortion, period, tampering in any way with freedom of religion opens a door we should never have to go through. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear from you about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shammai.org www.shammai.org and email me, please. You can read my column in the Jewish Standard or go to the columns page of my website, www.shammai.org. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy. Stay safe and have a meaningful fast with Yom Kippur.